Would you please pray with me? Holy God, silence within us any voices but your own. As we meditate on your word, teach us to love your word and choose your way. Amen. It doesn't matter who your parents are or who their parents were or where you come from. What matters is what you do now with the opportunities this country presents to you. This is the legend of the American dream. It is what we call a foundation legend. Foundation legends express a culture's values and aspirations. They become ways for people to understand the nature of the culture they live in and their place within that culture. Foundation legends can be based on historical incidents with the addition or omission of historical details, or they can be pure fiction. One of the foundation legends that was circulated and passed down among immigrants in the United States during the first half of the 1900s is the story that one's family surname had been changed at Ellis Island. That immigration officers at that port of entry into this country recorded one's family surname, but recorded it incorrectly because they just lacked competence with all the different languages of arriving immigrants and mistook their foreign names for something more recognizable. Tomshinsky was changed to Thomas or Laskowski to Lake. This particular legend had no factual basis, but that didn't prevent it from sticking. Plenty of name changes in that period of time did take place, but not at Ellis Island. New York City civil court records from the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s show that immigrants filed petitions for themselves, for their own and their, their children's surnames to be changed. The petitions included reasons for these requests and they almost always referred to how their names sounded foreign or difficult to spell and pronounce and would be an economic impediment. Given that no one's name actually changed on Ellis Island, what purpose did the Ellis Island legend serve? It made America into a place where people could keep their identities of origin without any interruption while also making America into a place where welcoming people made innocent mistakes that coincidentally helped them to fit right in at no cost to them or to the tradition they wanted to maintain. It enabled immigrant parents to say to their children that something funny happened at Ellis Island, something completely innocent that didn't hurt them but helped them a little bit. Reflecting on the role that foundation legends have played psychologically for Jewish people around the world, writer Dara Horn, also Jewish herself, says that nearly every 
diaspora Jewish community in world history has at least one founding legend that the community has accepted as fact, no matter how absurd the story might be. According to one story about the founding of the Jewish community in Poland, when Jews arrived in Poland a thousand years ago, the head of the Jewish community announced in Hebrew, Poland, which means here we will dwell. And that name spread and stuck among all the local people. Jews who arrived in Poland thereafter discovered how welcomed they were. Jewish communities in France claimed that Jews had lived there since the time of the first temple in Jerusalem, which would have been nearly 3,000 years ago. This founding myth served as an alibi for why they weren't involved in killing Jesus. In Algeria, there was a Jewish legend that they had been living there since the time of the second temple, which was around 2,000 years ago. There also was a great alibi for explaining to Muslims that they were already there before the Islamic conquest. None of these legends were true. While the issue of whether a foundation is fact or fiction may be interesting, but perhaps a more interesting question could be what purpose the legend has served. There are foundation legends in the Bible, too. One that permeates the ancient memory of Israel is the story of how God commanded Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And how that command was reiterated to Isaac and then to Isaac's son Jacob and sets into motion both the emancipation from Egypt, and the onerous journey through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. This foundation legend is continued into the book of Joshua. According to Joshua, God leads the Israelites into victorious battle against the Canaanites who are already inhabiting the land. The story that Joshua presents of the Israelites totally annihilating the Canaanites simply didn't happen. Evidence to the contrary shows that by the time the book of Joshua was written, Israel and Judah had been attacked, militarily and politically exploited, and exiled to e by Egypt, Babylon, and Assyria. While there may have been some skirmishes, the battle reports in the book of Joshua are completely aggrandized by authors living centuries later. One biblical scholar says that the foundation legend told in the book of Joshua is not unlike stories of pilgrims celebrating the first Thanksgiving at Plymouth or George Washington chopping down a cherry tree. So, what purpose did the founding legend in the book of Joshua serve? Its purpose was not to teach what really happened or to deceive the audience into thinking that something happened that in fact didn't. The real concern was to reignite national coherence, allegiance, unity, 
as the book of Joshua portrays it, the Israelites are finally settled into the land of Canaan, the land promised to them by God. Under Joshua's leadership, they have fought, conquered, and made treaties with those who were already living in the land, the citizens of Jericho, the Amorites, Perizzites, and Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now they are inhabiting the land themselves. So Joshua calls all the tribes of Israel to gather at a place called Shechem. He gathers them at Shechem because Shechem is a place where long ago their ancestor Jacob led his household in a ceremony to bury their idols. And now Joshua wants the Israelites to do the same. He wants them to pledge their absolute allegiance again to the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve. This is Joshua's injunction to the Israelites. Will you serve the gods that your ancestors before Abraham served when they were living in their ancestral lands? Or will you serve the gods of these inhabitants of Canaan whom you are now living with? Or will you serve the Lord? As for me and my household, he says, we will serve the Lord. Joshua sees the need for the Israelites to re-articulate their pledge, their allegiance to God. Why now? What was it about this time, about this situation that led Joshua to ask for their allegiance to the Lord? After all, he didn't ask it of them when they when he needed to inspire them to fight like warriors around the clock, even though as former slaves in Egypt and then nomads in the wilderness, they had never been trained in warfare. When their lives literally depended on one another, he didn't ask them to pledge their allegiance. No, he didn't ask for their allegiance at those times when a victory was needed. It wasn't until a long time afterward, the author writes, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies all around, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, that Joshua sensed the need to renew their allegiance to, to restate their half of the covenant with God. Their half of the covenant was to adhere to God's laws, to the commandments given to Moses, on Mount Sinai. God had done all these mighty things for them. God had brought them out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and into the promised land. Now Joshua presses them to hold up their end of the covenant. If they're not willing to be responsible for themselves, to obey God's laws, there will be consequences. They will be held accountable. Joshua says to them, if you forsake the Lord, then God will turn and do you harm and consume you, even after having done all these good things for you. I find this remarkable. I find it remarkable that a foundation legend has at its core a covenant that requires a people to uphold their responsibilities 
and insists that they will be held accountable for those responsibilities. Responsibility is written into this foundation legend. I cannot help but wonder what difference this emphasis on responsibility could make to the church everywhere. For Christians, the emphasis on responsibility and accountability, I fear, has gotten a bit lost in that we have been so quick to sum up the entire love with the commandment to love. Surely love covers the legal terrain. Jesus was, after all, the one to sum up the entire law and the love commandment. But perhaps the emphasis on responsibility has gotten lost to the world's detriment. This thought occurred to me when I was reading Dara Horn's account of going through a museum, an exhibition called Auschwitz, long, not long ago, not far away. It is the newest of Auschwitz exhibits, and like all the others, it was intended to be educational. About her experience of it, Dara Horn writes, the Auschwitz exhibition is everything an Auschwitz exhibition should be. It is thorough, professional, engaging, comprehensive, clear. It corrects every annoying minor flaw in every other Holocaust exhibition I have ever seen. It does absolutely everything right. And after describing much of it in detail, she writes, the exhibition is relentless. After an hour and a half, I marveled that I was barely past Kristallnacht. What the hell is taking so long? I found myself thinking, alarmed by how annoyed I was. Can't they invade Poland already? Kill us all and just get it over with. Somehow, after I got through the gas chambers, there was still impossibly another hour left. How can there still be an hour left? Isn't everybody dead already? Dara Horn's account of walking through a comprehensive exhibition of how Jews were treated worldwide leading to Auschwitz made it clear that people will do absolutely anything to blame their problems on others. Entire societies will abdicate responsibility for their own problems. This was what this walk through the exhibit exhibition made blatantly clear to her. The exhibition ends with on-screen survivors talking in a loop about how people need to love one another. Though talking about love seems unobjectionable, Dara Horn finds it entirely objectionable. The Holocaust didn't happen because of a lack of love, she writes. It happened because people all over the world blamed their own problems on someone else. Still, people are doing this. Anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, prejudice against Chinese people call us to watch ourselves, to watch that we do not also misplace 
blame on others. While more love surely would be a good thing, it will not necessarily lead us to take responsibility for the problems we face and to hold ourselves accountable for them. We can remember that Christ, who summed up the law in terms of love, also came not to abolish it, but to fulfill every word of it. Amen.